If you would, please take your Bibles back out and open them up to the Gospel of John, to John's Gospel, chapter 1. You know, you've often heard me joke about my affinity for Lord of the Rings. Jeffrey, this counts. Um, You've heard me say that I think it's probably one of the best things written in the English language, and I'm not exaggerating. I really do think that. I think, it, I think it, it comes in second to something, though, to the Bible. The Bible is the best thing written in the English language that we have. And, of course, Lord of the Rings comes in second to that. But with, within, within the Bible, through my years of study and through my years of growing as a Christian, there are just certain paragraphs that move me in ways that are just very personal and awesome to me. John's opening paragraph in his gospel, those first 18 verses, is one of those paragraphs. Dr. Knox Chamblin, who is now with the Lord, I took a specialized class at RTS on just Johannine literature. All we studied was John's writings. And I learned so much in that class and was taught by a man who was so moved by the prologue of John that he would often be reduced to weeping as he's trying to get through the verses at just the breadth and beauty and scope of how awesome and beautiful these verses are. I cannot tell you, John was a simple man. He was a fisherman called of the Lord, and every word in his whole gospel, but this prologue especially, is so precise, so precisely chosen to communicate a message about something that is so precise and beautiful. And as Dr. Chamblin would teach us John's gospel, he would, he would weep from time to time. And, and so I would imagine that some of my love for this paragraph comes from having sat under a man who loved it as much as he did. Um, I'm going to reserve some more comments for later on, but John's gospel, probably you've heard and you've heard it told that when someone's a new believer, we should have them read John's gospel. There's a reason for that, because of its clear, concise way of communicating about Jesus. And, And this prologue, everything in the gospel comes back And the gospel of John comes back to these 18 verses. And so I've chosen it this Advent season for us to focus on, yes, the birth of Christ is so beautiful, it's such a good thing that we think about, but also for this Advent for us to focus on something that happened even, or something that's even more ancient than that, and that's the eternality of the one who came in time to save us from our sin. The God-man, we're going to focus on Jesus' godness this year because it's so vital to our faith. It's foundational to our faith. And so without further delay, let's turn our attention to John's gospel. This morning, I'm only going to be preaching on the first five verses, but I'm going to read the whole paragraph because this paragraph merits being read in its full context. And so, beloved of God, follow now, if you will. This is God's infallible, inerrant word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is the Father's, who is the Father's side. He has made him known. So ends the reading of God's Word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me now. Father, thank you for this Word. Thank you for its richness, its depth, its beauty, its truth. Oh God, draw us in now, I pray. Renew our minds, I pray. Renew our hearts, I pray. Strengthen us as we hear and receive and transform us, I pray, through the power of the Spirit in your Word. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. You know, one of the richest paragraphs in the world, I've just spent some time talking about it, is before us. It is lovely, it's beautiful, it's full of mystery, it's full of complexity, it's full of simplicity, it's full of beauty. It's all these things wrapped into one. And what it does is when we look at a paragraph like this, it's inviting us to do something. We can't read this and be neutral. We can't read this and be unaffected. It's inviting us to consider. It's inviting us to think about the depth and richness of what the incarnation actually is, that Jesus, who was in the beginning with God and He is God, that He comes in space and time to live as a man, beloved of God. We hear it so much, we're used to it, but have you let the mystery and this, the, the wow factor of that wash over you in a while, that Jesus, who is God, came and lived as a man? And so we're invited, John is inviting us in to consider how powerful this really is. And look, I love that John, you know, Matthew and Mark, and, or Matthew and Luke primarily, start with the birth narratives of Christ, and that's fitting. They're, they're trying to establish his humanity. They're trying to establish the lineage of David and all those things, that he is the fulfillment of prophecy. But I love that John says, no, 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 we're going to go back a little bit further. We're not going to focus in on his birth, even though that's important. We're going to focus in on who he is. Who is he? Who is this one who is coming? Who is this one who came to the earth? Tell us or, or, or let the words speak to our hearts about who is Jesus. Because at Christmas time, it's easy to make him innocuous. We celebrate Christmas because it's, you know, fun and merry. But John says, no, 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 no. We've got to understand who Jesus is. We've got to start with who he is. What is his identity? What is his essence? What is his being? And so John is taking us back to the beginning. We're looking at what we'll see, what will unfold. We won't go through the gospel of John, at least not yet. We're, we're looking at what's going to unfold as the true power of the incarnation, that he is the true eternal God. And there is one response to that truth, beloved. It's doxology. It's worship. It's glory. That's why I love Christmas time, specifically because so many of the songs talk about the doxological response of angels, of Mary, of whomever else is confronted with the coming of Christ. And John's gospel here, John's prologue here is inviting us. It's not just inviting us to worship. It demands it. It demands it because of who Jesus is. 
And so we're looking at these verses here. It is called the prologue, in case you're wondering what a prologue is. It's just the beginning word, literally the beginning word of something. Many books have prologues, basically, that talk about what they're going to talk about in the book. That's essentially what John is doing here. He's giving us a prologue, telling us exactly the direction he's going with his gospel, giving us themes and ideas for us that you will, you will see if, if you were to go to the whole book, you would always be coming back around to the prologue where John has laid foundational stones. What John is also doing is giving us a robust, a very robust Christology that is a theology of Christ, a theology of Christ that shapes how we understand this gospel, how we understand the New Testament, how we understand the Bible as a whole. John, being a Hebrew, writes in a very Hebraic style. He thinks like a Jewish man because that's what he was. But he's connecting Jesus with the Genesis narrative, when I was with the kids a few weeks ago talking about worldviews, I asked them what the most important Bible verse is, and I told them the most important Bible verse is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, because that establishes the foundation upon which all belief is built. John is taking us to the beginning, and what he's telling you is, in the beginning, when God created the heaven and the earth, the word is connected there, Jesus is connected there, and so this incarnation He's giving us a theology of Jesus by means of the incarnation, by saying, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a moral example. He is God. And you, we have to start there if we're going to have a proper view of Advent, of Jesus, of everything. One of my, the seminary professor I referenced earlier, his name was Knox Chamlin. He said this about the gospel of John one time when we were in class, he said that John was his favorite gospel, and he said, because it's shallow enough for a child to wade in and deep enough for an elephant to swim, that anyone in this room can read the gospel of John and be edified. And beloved, I'm telling you, there is so much depth and complexity to this book. We, we, time doesn't afford us to explore all that is in John's gospel. Nothing else in the world makes sense until we understand who Jesus is and how he affects all things. Nothing else in Scripture makes sense until we understand who Jesus is and how he affects all things. This is not just, hey, we need to get our thinking right. This is not just, hey, we need to have good theology. We do need to think rightly, and we need to have good theology. This is saying we've got to be clear on who Jesus is for us to understand the rest of the story. If we are going to have a worldview that's solid and biblical, we've got to be clear on who Jesus is. The consistent message of John's gospel, starting in verse 1, is that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. He is, going to, he is a babe in a manger in human history. He is Yahweh. He was a, a good teacher. He is Yahweh. He's just banging this drum again and again for us so that we are not confused about who Jesus is. He's writing for the world to read the story of the identity of Christ. The, theme, the themes in this prologue, we see the Word. We see life and and light, we see witness, we see redemption, we see truth, we see grace. We see all these things that are mentioned in the prologue that John, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, will actually come back to and flesh out. So this is his thesis statement. The rest of the gospel of John is fleshing out 
what he says in here. It's, it's powerful. If you haven't read John's gospel lately, do it. I encourage you to do it. Whatever you're reading, read it in conjunction with that. Read this gospel. It is so powerful. In this gospel, one thing I love about John is he takes human responsibility and God's sovereignty, and he constantly drops them out on the page, and he doesn't solve the tension. He just says, God saves and is sovereignly so, and you are responsible for your sin. And he lets it sit there. Like a good writer, he doesn't try to solve it for you. It's not solvable. But I love that John does that. John is compelling us to see Advent as God with us, right? As Isaiah had prophesied, Emmanuel. He's compelling us to see Advent and the ministry of Jesus as God with us. So this is a call to worship in a meaningful way. This is a call to live for the one who, though he was the shoot of Jesse, was also the root. And John is dealing with the root aspect. So he's of the line of David, but he's David's Lord. He sits in the throne of David, but it's his throne. It's powerful, the juxtaposition that we see often in Scripture. And so with those opening thoughts in mind, there's one idea, idea I want for us to see this morning, and it's this, that Christ is the eternal beginning that we need, that Christ is the eternal beginning that we need. So when we think about this, what is John doing? The primary thing that's on display here is the word, word. John identifies Jesus as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John's opening verse is identifying Jesus as the Word. Now, not surprisingly, there's been tons of debate on what that word, Word, it's logos in the Greek. I'm sure most of us are familiar with that. There's been tons of debate throughout history of what, how we should actually translate that. Word seems to be the best thing as it's playing on the idea that Jesus, if we think about creation being spoken by God's Word and mediated through Jesus, and Jesus being the essence of God, the essence of God's covenant is Christ, the Word makes sense to me. Word makes absolute sense. And not to mention that it was such a charged Word in the Greek culture that John was in. What he's doing is he's taking this Word and giving it its ultimate superior meaning, that it is an expression of God, that Jesus came as God, he came as God in the flesh. He came as the Word, the true Logos, the true eternal Word. In other words, Jesus is the last Word. So when we think about that, it makes sense that we would use the word Word for Christ. And in fact, that's what Logos means. Some of the Reformers like to th call Jesus in the beginning was the speech, and it just, just doesn't ring with me. I mean, it just doesn't have the same compelling power as word for whatever reason. I was reading through one of the reformers this past week, and, and I was reading his translation of this, and he said, and in the beginning was the speech. And I was like, what? Hold up. The speech? That's cool. You know, he's, he's getting at the, the, the verbal aspect. The word is better. So, so don't use speech. The heart... The heart of the gospel writing, the heart of this gospel writing, and all of them, of course, is who Jesus is. It's, as we said a moment ago, it's the, it's the truth of his identity. 
It's what he brings to the earth, what he is, what he embodies, what his being is. That's what the heart of the gospel, at least especially this gospel, is. And, and we know that that's true because John records miracles that Jesus does, a powerful miracle in the raising of Lazarus for sure. John records, John is the only gospel that records the I am statements of Christ, specific statements made to explicitly declare his identity to a world who was listening, and some of which they understood exactly what he was doing. He was almost killed a couple times for the statements that he made. And so John is really getting at who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Not, not who do we think he is, who is he? What has the Holy Spirit revealed to the pen of John about Jesus? So he starts here in the beginning. Of course, we understand that that is an allusion I've already mentioned to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We understand that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, when God, when we are told through the pen of Moses, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth because the earth was void and formless, that God brought form, that God brought substance to the earth, that he brought order to what was chaotic in the world. And so we see Jesus in the beginning. His purpose is to bring order to the chaos of sin and death for the, for the purpose of redeeming a lost people. We will interact with those themes later on on another, on another time. But in the beginning, so we have, right here we have to deal with something. Is John indicating that Jesus came to life at the beginning of time, or is John making another statement? Well, he's making another statement. When we see that phrase, in the beginning, the semantical value of that prepositional phrase is a first cause of sorts. So, in the beginning, when the earth was first being formed and caused, Jesus was he, was, he was already the Word and He was with God then, right? He was with God at that first cause of creation. So, when we look, what John is doing is he's taking Jesus and he's associating Him with the first causes of creation. So, in the beginning, when all things came to be, Jesus was there. He was with God. And in fact, He wasn't just with God. He, he was God. He was in the beginning with God. John is emphatically making a point so that we understand that Jesus was not some upstart. He was not some zealot. He was not some lunatic. He was the true eternal God who was involved in the first and the first or part of the first causes of creation reigning. And beloved, he came to earth. He stood on the very sand and, and dirt that he created. I get in chill bumps. He drank water that he created. He tasted food that he created. It is a powerful, powerful reality that we have in Christianity, and it is unique to Christianity. So Jesus is the Word with God in the beginning. The Word was God. I love this, something happening here in John's gospel that is unique. In the beginning was the Word. Prepositions matter, by the way. The Word was with God. That is an uncommon use of that preposition with there. We need to understand. There is a, a typical word in Greek that's used for with that is the most common. John uses a word here that prepositionally speaking is normally trans, would be translated as to or toward. So it's interesting. It's the word pros, not that you need to know that, but that's what it is. It's not the normal word that he would use. And so we're looking at something here as this preposition 
with here, the implication of using it this way is saying that it's not just proximity, but it's intimacy. So when it's telling us that the Word was with God here through this one little preposition, what John is meaning to communicate is Jesus wasn't just near God. There was an intimacy there that is uncommon, that we, that we don't have, that Jesus has with the Father. That's what John is getting at. That's what John is trying to explain, is it's not just proximity, but it's intimacy. That Jesus was in an intimate relationship with the Father at the beginning, which is why in John 8, chapter 8, verse 58, when the Jews accused Jesus of, you're not yet 50 and you've seen our father Abraham, do you remember what his response is? Before Abraham was, I am. And they wanted to kill him for it. They wanted to stone him to death for that statement because they knew exactly what he was saying because John had already told us in chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, i.e. intimately involved with God. They have a fellowship that cannot be broken. The powerful statement that John does here. I'll tell you something else that John does that is unique. And I'm sorry I'm nerding out over grammar this morning, but it matters. Um, words, vocabulary, they matter. In the beginning, be verb was the word, and the word was with God, be verb, and the word was God, that's a be verb. He was, there you go again, in the beginning with God. Then you'll see another one, all things were made through him. Now that little be verb there is different than the be verbs in the first two verses. Do you know why? John is using a form of a me. Now why is that important in verses one and two? Because in Greek, when Jesus says, I am, he says, ego, a me. John is connecting Jesus' identity with that specific a me verb to give us our first foreshadowings of who Jesus is. So when he starts saying, when he gives us those seven I am statements, beloved, he's hearkening back to something he's already said about Jesus in verse 1 and 2. It's a powerful connection when you see it because Verse 3 is a different be verb that he uses, and he could have easily used the same verb, but he didn't. He chose one different one for a very specific reason, because verses 1 and 2, I'm going to give you a fancy word. It's what we'd say it's ontological. It comes from a word ontos, meaning being. He's making an ontological statement, a statement of being about Jesus, that Jesus is this, that Jesus is God, that the word is God. And so when we see the, when we see verses 1 and 2 as they lay out, the way John lays them out, we understand that there's this, this connection between two persons of the Trinity, Trinity, and we have to acknowledge the deity of Christ. So, beloved, when we think about our world, and we, you know, talking about worldview, what is often the first thing the world wants to attack in Christianity? Who is Jesus? Does Jesus really make moral demands? Does Je is Jesus really God? Is Jesus really going to confront sin? Is Jesus really going to say truth if it's hard or if it hurts? That's exactly what the world and culture do. They come at us attacking who is Jesus. That's why when the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witness show up at my door, the first question I'll always ask them is, well, what do you say of Christ? What do you say of Jesus? Because that's where we differ. That's where they have gone off into a place that is not orthodox and is heretical. 
because establishing who Jesus is is establishing everything. And so having a firm understanding of who Jesus is is the foundation upon which everything is built. There is no biblical worldview if we don't have a firm foundation of Christ. And so we, 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 setting the truth of Jesus, this person, straight is, is so vital to us because that is where the world attacks. Why does John essentially restate in verse 2 what he just said? This is a classic literary device in Hebrew called parallelism. It's essentially Hebrew did not have exclamation points, and so if they really wanted to make a point emphatic, they just repeated themselves. And so, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It's essentially stating the same thing twice for emphatic purposes. He's trying to put an emphasis on there. And so why is he doing that? I've already said it, but it bears repeating here. Because Jesus is not merely a prophet. He's not merely a good teacher. He's not merely a moral man. He is God. He is supreme. He is superior. He is worthy of worship. And if we think anything less of Jesus as God, we have strayed from Scripture. That is why, beloved why do, we, why do we take so seriously the virgin birth? Because it, it speaks to a f- prophecy fulfilled that Jesus is the Son of God incarnate or, or, or put in Mary by the Holy Spirit. It's so important that we understand those concepts because it's getting at the identity of Jesus. Why, why attack those things that seem tertiary? Because it puts chinks in the armor of who Jesus is. That's what the world wants to do. But, you know, we stand firm on John chapter 1 and the rest of the Bible as we look at who Jesus is. And though he was the Word made flesh, he is with the Father, the first cause of creation. That is a powerful truth in reality and not something that we can fully grasp. When John, as John continues on through here, he says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So John speaks of the essence of Christ and how it affects creation. So as we're looking at the created order, we see all things, again, made through him. Isn't it interesting that he uses that word, through, not by. Not by him, but through him. What, what, what would we say? Well, we understand an important lesson here, a very simple one, but it's important that creation is an act of revelation by God. It is general revelation. Paul says in Romans 1 that we can look at the created order and know that there is a God. It is God's first act of revelation to reveal the world, to speak the world into existence through Christ. And I love that reality. I love that he says it that way, that it was made through him. And if we were to take a literal rendering of verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him, not one thing became that became. That would be as wooden literal as you could make it. And without him, not one, not one thing, literally, or kind of, not one single thing became that became. I know it sounds confusing, but the ESV makes it more readable. Without him was not anything made that was made. That's a fine translation, but that literal... Uh, that not one thing became that became what is he doing? Creation has its starting point in God. Creation has its starting point in Christ, in the Son of God. That's the starting point. They are eternal, 
we have a starting point. The universe is not eternal. It is not. God is eternal. The universe is under the authority and power of God and will diminish when he has decreed it will diminish. And so these prepositions here through, what it does, another thing that it does is it's showing us the teamwork of the Trinity. It wasn't created by the Father. It wasn't created by the Son. It was created by, or creation was created by God through the Son. And so that we're seeing this inclusion, this Trinitarian work in the act of creation. And so it's funny, all the deeper things that are implied when we speak about Merry Christmas, isn't it? When we start talking about Advent, all the deeper theology that's implied in these things that I think that we, we must grasp and we must worship Christ through these realities. So when Jesus tells us that he has all authority in heaven and earth, he does by default because it was created through him. The very wood he was nailed to at the crucifixion was trees that were the product of his creation. The very people that nailed him to said wood were people that were made in his image out of the dust of the earth. It brings it home. So when we think about this, uh, the act of humility that it took from Jesus to come and live that way and to be crucified like that by the very creatures that had been made through him, beloved of God, think about the love of God in that context. It's powerful. It is powerful. When we're talking about the literal rendition or the literal rendering of not one thing was made that was made, so that means nothing on earth exists apart from the creative force of Christ. And so when we think about that, all of life really does depend on Jesus. It depends on him being the first cause, and it depends on the sustaining power of God as he is part of the Godhead. What does that mean? That means that there are no creatures on the earth who just sprang up from nothing. There is no species of creature on the earth that just became through a series or a process. That means not one thing was made that was made without Jesus. Jesus made it. Jesus made man. Jesus and the Father made and the animal kingdom. Jesus and the Father created the heavens and the earth. Jesus and the Father made all things that exist. And so all of life owes its beginning, all of it, every single bit of it, to Jesus. Period. That's it. And so this is also a part of our worldview. A biblical worldview sees life as sacred. Why? Because it's God's. It's God's gift. God is the one who made it. And so we come in awe of this this morning. He moves on. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. In him was life. In him, that is in Jesus, was life, and it was the light of men. So we're looking at some fundamental aspects of creation and spiritual life here. The word there, life, is the word, if you have any friends or know anyone named Zoe, that's where the word comes from, Zoe, life. And this word, life in Greek, especially in Koine Greek, which is biblical Greek, there are two words that can, you can use for life. One is Zoe, 
meaning source. One is bios, that's where we get biology, the study of life, meaning living, or it can mean life, but it means more like living, and uh, you could even reduce it down to uh, like wage language. What John uses here is the word zoe, and it's the source of life itself, that Jesus, when he says that Jesus in him was the source of life itself, and that source of life was the light of man. I mean, so that's what Jesus is ta- or John is talking about here, rather, is that this, the source of life, that the, the life that the Word brought, the, light that, the life that the Word brought is a creative life. And we know that. You know why? Because Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and so the, the life that Jesus brings is the very life that raises us up out of that death. And so now... If you're in Christ this morning, you have the life of Christ in you. You're not the source of life, but you are connected to the source of life, the life that Jesus brought. And you know what I love about this life, and this is why we can share boldly, because where this life goes, it defeats death. Where this death reigns and where this life goes, it defeats it. It brings it to an end. And so what is Jesus? What is the Word? The only source of life. You're not going to find it in Islam. You're not going to find it in Hinduism. You're not going to find it in any other world religion or cult. You're going to find it in Jesus. So when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, in John chapter 14, verse 6, he's hearkening all the way back to John 1. He is the source of life. But he also says that he is the light. That is the phos. That is the word. Again, a source of light. He's not a lamp. He's not a reflection of light. He is light. He's not a reflection of life. He's not a product of life. He is life. He's not a reflection or a product of light. He is light. That's what John is. That's part of his being. That's part of his identity. And what is this? Not only does in the beginning hearken back to Genesis 1, Jesus being the light harkens back to Genesis 1. It should not be lost on us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the first thing he said is, let there be light. So it's not a coincidence that John mentioning Jesus as part of the first cause of creation mentions him as light. He brings a light that we need. He brings light to darkened hearts of humanity. That's part of the new creation that we are. And see, when we have the light and life of Christ, we have hope against sin and death. That is your hope today. Your hope is not climbing out of that hole. Your hope is not finally kicking depression for good. Your hope is not in never being anxious again. Your hope is not in never dealing with sadness or or never having failure. Beloved of God, we live in a world that's hard. Our hope is in the light and life of Christ, that when I do get lost in sin again, or when I get stumbling in the dark in sin, the light of Christ is there to guide me back. When I'm embracing things that bring death, the life of Christ is there to win me back. And when we're walking in the pits of sadness and despair, the light and life of Christ are there to get us through. That's the beauty of the light and life of Christ. It's the beauty of the Advent season. This final verse that we're going to look at this morning here, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Perhaps 
One of your translation that you read says, and the, the darkness has not understood it. There's a debate about which one it should be. Um, given the nature that literally you could say the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot put it out, I tend to go with the translation ESV has here, overcome. There is some, there's some lexical uh, elasticity on this word, and so understand it is not a bad translation. I just think overcome it is more precise. So how do we overcome the darkness? Well, through the light. It's the light that conquers darkness. You know, I've already made mention of the Genesis narrative of void and formless. The two Hebrew words there are called bohu and tohu, and they have more philosophical value too. They're not just describing the earth. They're talking about a place of complete and utter chaos and, and darkness and, and wretchedness. Something needs order. It needs light. It needs, it needs help. And so when God spoke light, he dispelled the darkness, and he began a process of bringing order to his creation. So that when we think of Jesus, where does he come to us? He comes to us in our darkness to bring order to our disordered hearts. You know what a disordered heart is? A, heart is, a disordered heart is a heart that's just given into all kinds of idolatry, and it doesn't know which way to go, so it just goes in every direction and, and tries to do all things until it dies or until the person dies. And so the gospel says, no, 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 your purpose and heart are singular for Christ. And it begins to order our hearts in the direction of God. And that's what John said Jesus came to do. Because Jesus is a light that cannot be put out. And if we were to shut down these lights in here and close those doors, isn't it interesting, I could light a lighter on the stage and it would illuminate to some degree. That's because in the world, <laughs> darkness can't dispel the light. And in our hearts, darkness cannot dispel the light. John is speaking to our lostness here. We need the light of Christ. We need him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him, that sinless one, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the best gift God could ever give you. The advent just in and of itself is God's greatest gift. And so when we think about these first five verses at least, we think about sin and death, that it has to flee before the light of Christ. John does definitely sounds the note of redemption here, and, and we're gonna, we'll come back to that more in the prologue as we get through it, Lord willing. But the beautiful thing about redemption is it can't be overpowered. It can't be conquered. The redeeming love of Christ is unconquerable. It's insurmountable. No matter how stupid we may be from time to time, no matter what lies we may buy into, no matter how far in the wilderness we might stray, the, the love of God is unconquerable. The darkness doesn't hold sway over Christ, and John is using creation language to get at the heart of the purpose of Christ. Christ has come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. How can Christ secure such a thing? Because he is the word who was with God in the beginning. So we need to trust in Christ and trust that our Savior has been working from the very beginning to draw us to himself. The story of redemption has been woven into the very foundation of who we are. So that Paul could say, you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Because Jesus, the Word, was with God in the beginning. Please pray with me.
Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for its power, its rich truth and beauty. Oh, it's just immeasurable. It's immeasurable how beautiful and rich it is. God, seal it to our hearts. Knit it to our souls. Compel us toward worship. Compel us toward humble thanksgiving at the beauty, depth, and power of your story for us. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.